Well, Jill Bennett is off today. I'm Bruce Claggett in for her. And of course, we've heard so many stories about BC Ferries over this past long weekend. And they weren't unexpected. We did know that there would be some challenges. And there was that combination of a couple challenges. One ferry being down for repairs. And also, we had, yeah, more staff out and unable to uh, adequately staff some of the smaller sailings. So it really is a challenge, and it is expected to continue to be that way for those long weekends and peak period times over the course of the summer. That directly from the CEO of BC Ferries. So are there alternatives for people that need to get between Vancouver Island and the mainland or the Gulf Islands and the mainland or the Gulf Islands and Vancouver Island? Are there alternatives for people that need to travel that don't want to take BC ferries that can do it without loading up a car? One of the things that comes to mind for me is often taking a float plane, Harbor Air maybe, and uh, and skipping some of the, the BC ferries hassle. But do they have similar problems during the peak periods? Well, to answer that, we bring in Kyle Gray he is a biz, business development specialist with Harbor Air. Kyle, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Kyle, got to ask, uh, how was the past weekend for you at Harbor Air? You know what, it's, Bruce, it was a fantastic weekend for us. Um, as most weekends, especially sunny weekends, we are very busy. Um, uh, this weekend specifically, there wasn't anything, you know, there was no necessarily surge in capacity for our aircrafts and routes. But, um, you know, we continue to be busy and the summer weather brings out so many tourists and we love to be that connection and option for people trying to get to the island or Sunshine Coast or up to Whistler or down to Seattle that much faster. I think of taking a float plane or, uh, or possibly a helicopter with Helijet or something. I think, wow, that's expensive and that's only for the business class. Do you get tourists that actually use Harbor Air at all? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, business class isn't necessarily something that, uh, that all of our travelers uh, take advantage of. We have a, a lot of great low fares at the moment that our travelers are taking advantage of. Our lowest fare right now is $79, and that's a one-way trip to downtown Vancouver and Cole Harbor to downtown Nanaimo. So we're strongly urging passengers to take advantage of these low fares while they can, especially in preparation for upcoming long weekends like the August long weekend or Labor Day long weekend. Get a lot of people that are a little bit afraid of traveling on a float plane. Uh, Harbor Air, by the way, can be a little bit bumpy. Um, and it flies kind of low to the water, at least if you look out the window. It's a different sort of travel experience. What do you say to those people? Um, do you think that there is a, a group that just simply won't travel by plane or float plane? To me personally, when it, when people ask me if they're a little hesitant, I said, you know, take one of our short tours for 20 minutes, see what you think. And nine times out of 10 or, or you know, even 99% of the time, people want to go back. They just said, you know, maybe I'm a little bit um, claustrophobic in smaller planes. But as far as the bumps and that type of thing, you know, they're, they're beautiful aircrafts and uh, the experience is, is unlike no other. Kyle, we've heard so many uh, challenges, I think is the best way to describe it over at BC Ferries. Are you noticing any difference in business at Harbor Air, maybe picking up slack or customers you never had before that are a little hesitant now with BC Ferries? 
You know, that's, that's an interesting question. And unless we explicitly ask passengers, we don't know. We, it's hard for us to kind of gauge whether or not people are coming from a BC Ferries terminal trying to get to the island faster. Um, it, it, you know, it, it's hard to gauge on the weekends because things are so busy for us as they already are. Uh, so to comment on whether that there's a surge in, in, you know, BC Ferries customers coming to us now, that's something that uh, it, we, we can't really, uh, we can't really um, qualify do you add more planes on uh, peak travel time, or is it about the same all the way through? Every weekend is a weekend. You know, people booking far enough in advance and, you know, taking advantage of those low rates for us, we do have an opportunity to look at the weekend ahead and see if there's any opportunities to add capacity. And should a weekend be um, extremely busy for us, yes, we, we can add, add extra aircraft uh, depending on certain routes if we can tell far enough in advance that it's going to be a busy route for us. You know, people basically have to take a look at the weather when they're traveling on BC ferries because there are cancellations when the high winds come in. Uh, You get that too with Harbor Air, but uh, what other weather things cancel flights? Uh, Smoke can be a challenge. Uh, Last year in August, that was a bit of a challenge for us. So um, similar to BC ferries, it's, uh, yeah, weather, weather can be an issue, but this type of, this time of year, um, we do see a lot more consistent weather and, and, uh, it makes for an, an exciting, uh, trip to the island. Okay. Uh, do you have any idea coming out of the pandemic if more people are traveling with Harbor Air or less? Do you have numbers that show one way or the other? Numbers are picking up. Um, a couple of Thursdays ago on June 15th was our highest date post-COVID, which was fantastic for us. Um, our business travelers, as you mentioned earlier, they're not traveling as much as uh, they were post-COVID. But, you know, there's a huge opportunity for business travel to continue to travel with us and the, the leisure market as well. Okay. Well, thanks for spending some time and talking to us a little bit about the float plane option. Uh, certainly something that is scenic to see when... You look from a ferry and even see one of the float planes flying. Kyle Gray, we appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Have a great day. And thanks for being back with us. Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett. Well, the BC port strike continues and there is no sign that it's going to be ending anytime soon. So that means pickets are up at ports around Vancouver along with the big, massive port up in Prince Rupert and ports even on Vancouver Island. And the question comes down to impacts for many of us. And for consumers, we might start to see a return to some of the supply chain challenges that we're all too terribly familiar with, because there is an impact when it comes to agri-food and some of the things that we produce or consume right here in British Columbia. To talk a little bit more about that, we bring in Sylvain Charlebois, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie. Thanks so much for joining us, Sylvain. My pleasure. So people may not be aware that there is a lot of food that goes right through the BC port. What are we looking at right now in terms of uh, challenges and how could it get a whole lot worse? Well, from an agri-food perspective, uh, just the port of Vancouver uh, will handle about 20 million metric tons of grains and over 12 million metric tons of fertilizers every single year. That's just one port. Uh, So as you can imagine, a lot of people, uh, not only in BC, but across the prairies, are a little nervous. Uh, Obviously, it's happening in July, so it's not as critical as, say, March or February, or even 
during harvest in the fall, but still uh, it's making everyone nervous uh, across the supply chain just because now they may start looking for alternatives. And there are alternatives. The thing about these labor disputes is that the more we see them, the more it, it compels the supply chain to look for alternatives and become comfortable with those alternatives moving forward. Reinvent the roots. I guess that's what we're talking about when we seek out alternatives, I guess. Yeah, exactly. you got Seattle and then, of course, California. These are major ports, and they're quite efficient. And, and the U.S. Is, is, is an efficient country when it comes to logistics. So it, it's really tempting for companies to just go elsewhere instead of just relying on Canadian-based routes. Uh, we saw that last year with Montreal. The, the, the Montreal strike lasted, I think, about seven days. And that was enough to really annoy companies. It didn't disrupt the economy. Uh, it didn't have an impact on inflation either. Uh, but still, uh, I mean, when you go to the U.S., Canada has a terrible reputation uh, because of some of these labor, labor disputes. And, uh, and that's why more and more companies are really looking for uh, different ways to move products around. You know, it's interesting at the height of, I don't know if there's a wheat season, but uh, in the wintertime especially, I can notice uh, right in Langley being stopped for a train and seeing so many grain cars after grain cars after grain cars coming in from what would be the prairies right to our ports. It's a lot. It's huge. Can we not oh, I, simply just just turn that around and have them go out of, well, I guess they couldn't go out of the East Coast because that would be too long a route by sea, but uh, they certainly can go down south, can't they? Well, the volume is, is, is more modest this time of year, and uh, the, the, the dispute is, is only a few days old. So uh, right now, I think everyone is... Uh, is in a in a wait and see mode while shopping around for different options. Like grain handlers will look for different routes. Uh, they may not commit to different routes yet, but if 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 the if the strike lasts, then it be, it can become a problem. I, I've always I've always believed for many many years that uh, any jobs related to our food supply chain should be considered as an essential service. Because right now, you would see if this dispute lasts, uh, you literally have hundreds of thousands of of businesses uh, that are held hostage as a result of this dispute. Well, it is a federal uh, service. uh, And, of course, we could see back-to-work legislation. That still is possible, essential or not. I imagine that could happen. And if we start to see some of the impacts of this, it will, in fact, happen. That's just a given. Is that your understanding? Well, yeah, that, well, I don't think we need to go there. That's the thing. Because <laughs> right now, I mean, farmers, a lot of these companies are moving perishable products. Time is of essence, so they can't just wait. That's the thing about the agri-food supply chain. And uh, that's why I've always believed that, that we need to protect this very precious thing we have, which is called the food supply chain. It is the backbone of our, our agri-food economy and sometimes we forget about it because it's invisible it's not real for most people but it is real for farmers real for processors and everyone buying and selling stuff 
Does this not end up being a bit of a boost when we have a challenge like this for some of the agri-tech around Canada, like uh, vertical farming? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, first of all, we need to uh, understand that we have an open economy. A lot of businesses in BC and elsewhere rely on trade to make a living. And so we do export quite a bit and that's not going to change, but we need, that's the biggest challenge with these uh, labor disputes is, is our, our exports. So if you can't rely on that, that's a problem. And we're only 40 million people in this country. And, uh, and the wealth that we have is, is due to the fact that we do sell a lot of our agri-food to the rest of the world. And uh, I'm hoping that it's, that will continue, but our reputation uh, is is often damaged by some of these events. Okay, let's take it right to the other side and break it right down to the consumer level and talk about imports. When would we start to see any sort of impact when it comes to our fruits, vegetables, and other things that we uh, import by ship? So, so we estimate about 16% of all the food that we consume uh, actually comes from uh, BC ports. <laughs> That's a lot. It's, uh, it's a lot. And so I, I don't think that we're going to see any uh, impact if, if the dispute lasts, say, less than a couple of weeks. After, beyond that, uh, uh, all bets are off, I think. Uh, a lot of people are concerned about inflation, I'm not sure it's going to have an impact on food inflation and food prices until, uh, unless the dispute actually lasts for well over a month. And I'd be shocked if it does. I'd be shocked, too. Uh, that's interesting yeah. to see. But you being surprised that it is not going to happen, uh, at least uh, inflation-wise, your prediction, uh, that we would see that about a month, that surprises me. Because I think that any excuse to start raising the price with any sort of suggestion of there being a supply chain problem, and you're going to start to see prices go up in certain key areas. What, what well, areas? You may, you may actually see some empty shelves and some empty skews, of course, but it doesn't mean that prices will be impacted because there are several alternatives out there. In Montreal, like I said last year, the strike actually lasted seven days we saw zero impact on prices or availability. Fair enough. Uh, What shelves are going to be empty first? Well, think of what we actually import from Asia. So there's lots of processed foods. Center of the store, many many specialty stores actually do actually sell carry products coming from Asia. So I would probably see them uh, go out first, like pasta, noodles, uh, things like that. Ready-to-eat products uh, that are uh, non-perishables, uh, uh, those are probably products I would expect to, to run short of very quickly. Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett. Thanks for staying with us. We've been talking with Sylvain Charlebois, Director of Agri-Food Analytics at Dalhousie University. We have been talking about the supply chain, the BC port strike, and food in general. But there is this other topic that is getting a fair amount of attention and the attention is growing and it deals with food insecurity or a lack of food security because there are calls right now for Canada to look at best before dates. Yeah, those dates you see on packages and whether those dates actually cause more problems when it comes to food waste and food insecurity. In fact, a report on grocery affordability 
from a House of Commons Committee on Agriculture and Agri-Food quotes the CEO of Second Harvest Canada as saying, Canadians' misconceptions about the best before dates lead to an excess of food waste. I know this is something you've been uh, looking at yourself, Sylvain. How big a problem is it? Uh, it is. Uh, are two reasons why people throw away food a lot at home. One of them is uh, is is because we don't manage food properly. Uh, we tend to forget what's in our freezer, uh, cupboard, uh, fridge, and uh, that's a problem. The other issue, of course, are best before dates. Uh, people tend to throw away food, perfectly good food, uh, after. Uh, the best before dates, and so best before doesn't mean bad after, and most people don't know that, so they're not, they're not, they're, they're, they just don't hesitate. They just throw food away, which tends to cost a lot of money. the The average household in British Columbia may throw away up to three thousand dollars worth of food every single year. So we throw away a lot of food. Best before doesn't mean bad after. I like that. I've never heard it expressed that way, but. That is especially true with some foods. I wouldn't take the risk with others when it comes to, like, dairy products. Do you make a difference between two types of uh, products or different types of products when it comes to those dates? Well, a week ago, I actually had Greek yogurt. Uh, It was unopened, and it was six months past the best before dates. And I'm still talking to you. <laughs> I hear a little bit of a sniffle in the uh, voice, but well, yes, you're still okay. But it was, but but it was on open, of course, and it really, really depends on who you are, how healthy you are. If you have a compromised immune system, I wouldn't take a chance. But I mean, the bottom line is that food waste is an issue, and that's why in the UK, even in Australia, more and more grocers are actually moving away from these best before dates now. There are expiry dates out there, and I wouldn't mess with that. I mean, there are a lot of products that you can't, we shouldn't eat after the expiry date. Uh, but best before date is really an indication of quality and freshness, and that's about it. And so, uh, and frankly, I think the last few years there's been even an overuse of these best before dates. You even see best before dates on sugar, salt, honey. And these products never go bad. It doesn't matter if you eat them like in 100 years from now, they're still going to be fine. And that's why... Well, honey, especially historically, that's being found in tombs, right? I know. I know. So, I mean, I think I think we've been... Uh, we, we're, we're almost addicted to these dates now. We have a very strong food safety culture in Canada. A lot of people are concerned about food safety. And that has led us to actually waste more. So who sets the regulations when it comes to food dates? Is that all federal? It is Health Canada. That's right. And so it is not the first time uh, that uh, that uh, the uh, the committee in Ottawa has actually recommended something like this. But there's little appetite for this in Canada. No pun. Uh, we surveyed Canadians uh, about six months ago. Uh, and 27%, only 27% of Canes would be willing to to eliminate uh, as before dates. And so, and the other thing, of course, that you have to keep in mind is that we do benefit financially from these dates because a lot of people, especially now these days, are looking for these uh, for those enjoy tonight deals. 
You know, when, when the expire or the best before date is tomorrow, the next day, uh, you get 50% off and sometimes even 75% off. So people are linking these major deals with best before dates. And so, so that's why many Canadians just don't want to let go of them. How close are we coming out of this House of Commons committee taking a look at it to actually changing the rules, whether there is support or not? We still know food insecurity exists. So do you expect any sort of relaxation? No, not in Canada. However, however, I do expect more awareness. Uh, For example, explaining on packages what the date actually means to people. So... Uh, meaning, for example, the best before doesn't mean bad after kind of slogan uh, on, on packages. I do see the committee moving in that direction without eliminating the date or dates per se. Okay. Well, it'll be interesting to see. And, of course, when it comes to food banks themselves, do they have to follow the federal uh, best before dates or can they accept expired food? Well, I, I'm, I'm on the board of Second Harvest myself, and, and I've volunteered at food banks, and most of the stuff that food banks receive uh, is frozen. And, uh, and then, of course, uh, they are, uh, they are, there's more flexibility there. So best before dates aren't necessarily uh, as important for, uh, for food banks as long as products are frozen. So that's the key there. And, and, and products that are repurposed and rerouted towards food banks, typically they're all safe. And that's the bottom line, whether it's safe or not. Thanks so much for your time on this topic and also going back to the port strike, uh, talking to us a little bit about what we can expect and how worried we need to be. Savan, always a pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. And it is Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett. What is the problem with kids? Well, that may be the question that's coming up more often if you live or visit certain popular areas around West Vancouver. In fact, the West Vancouver police are now urging parents to talk to their children. This after a big increase in youth-related violence in the Ambleside and Park Royal areas, two very popular areas, especially when it comes to summertime. There have been several bear spray incidents Two cases involving knives, one case involving a fake gun. When you hear of cases involving a fake gun and kids, you have to be especially worried because many of these interventions or many of these cases involve police officers attending and seeing a gun, not even knowing the age of some of the kids. Now, among the cases, there have also been several drug and booze-related files it's, uh, it's going to be something that they're watching very carefully to see if there is a problem. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's something that we have been hearing as a bit of a warning from West Vancouver police. Yeah, well, so far we haven't uh, heard much more on that. We're hoping, by the way, to get a little bit more on this by talking to West Vancouver police who have promised to spend some time with us and uh, we're just trying to get in contact with them again to find out what they're doing in reaching out to parents and 
We're just seeing that, uh, yes, that phone call may be coming in now. So we'll just stall for a moment and talk a little bit more about this, but also an opportunity to hear from you. If you have any experience with this, with Problem Kids, would love to hear that by, you know, sending us something maybe on the buzz line. What about your area? But let's talk about West Vancouver Constable Nicole Braithwaite is now with us. Constable, thanks so much for joining us. Hope we didn't uh, take you away from something more important. No, nothing's never more important than you. Thanks for having me on the show today. Okay, well, it's called stalling on my part a little bit. But let's talk about the more important issue here. When it comes to Ambleside and Park Royal, I love those areas. Love Ambleside Park. But, you know, when I start to hear of stories of bear spray, knives, and a fake gun, what is going on? Well, you know, the nice weather and um, summertime has definitely brought a lot of youth into our area. Um, Along with social media these days, we're seeing a huge increase in people posting um, about parties in the Ambleside area on um, things like TikTok and Instagram, which is just bringing youth by the hundreds to um, Ambleside area, especially on the weekends. Um, A lot of the youth are either from the North Shore, but they come as far as Burnaby, Surrey area to um, enjoy our beaches. You know, it reminds me of growing up in Tawasson. Uh, I'm from Delta, and, you know, we had a place in Tawasson called The Steps back in the 1970s and 80s. And this was a place going down to the beach by this big group of steps, and uh, kids would go down there, not myself, of course, but uh, they would go down there and they would party, and often it led to some violence. And you heard of terrible stories coming out of that area, and the police had to be called in. But that was a time before social media, and it was also never involving weapons of any sort that I can remember Are we seeing a real increase in weapons? Uh, How did this come about? We are seeing a real increase in um, youth carrying uh, bear spray with them as means for protection. Uh, Bear spray, as you know, is used when hiking in the wilderness against wildlife. And um, so then it becomes easier to purchase in stores. And so a lot of youth are carrying it nowadays, they say, for protection. But my question is, we are in West Vancouver, and if you're needing it for protection, you shouldn't be hanging out with the crowds and the people that you are hanging out with. Well, this is the thing that's really puzzling me. Who were the foes? Are they not all going down to uh, one area to... I mean, they shouldn't be going down there for any reason uh, sometimes and gathering and drinking or whatever. But are they going down there to have a party or are they going down there to have a fight? Do you know? Um, It's a combination of all of the above. We've had calls in recent months where um, youth are swarming other youth at the playground at Ambleside where there are parents and children enjoying the beach. There have been fights at the skate park um, where there are young children. There have been drinking and cannabis use along the beaches, as well as people being um, pepper sprayed. And it's just a huge concern, obviously, for police. It's a huge strain on police resources when we're constantly deploying um, excessive police uh, through those areas. And it also becomes not a great place for families to hang out. As a mother with two young kids, I don't even want to spend a Friday night around that area with my children because I'm not sure what might happen. 
Constable, uh, you mentioned it's uh, being spread through social media. And I wonder if this involves a few bad apples ruining it for everybody. And are you able to kind of track down who's involved or who's behind this by going through social media posts? Yeah, we know who's posting about the uh, the different parties in, in West Vancouver. But as with social media, a lot of these accounts get taken down and new ones get generated and posts get spread so quickly that it's difficult to deter people from um, looking at it and then going on to Ambleside to see what's happening. So we're just urging parents to please know where your children are. A lot of the issues stem from parents not knowing where their kids are hanging out or who they're hanging out with these days so we really just urge parents to know where their youth are what they're up to and who they're hanging out with and have conversations with the youth parents about it as well yeah and is there any sort of time that this is happening more often than other times like is it a weekend thing or is it every night so before summer officially kicked off last week with school ending we were normally seeing it on Friday evenings into the weekends. Um, But with the summer here, we are not sure as to when it might be happening. Um, Usually Friday evening, Saturday early evening into the evening time. Okay. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. A bit of a scary situation. I hope parents are having that conversation. Constable Nicole Braithwaite, appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me. Take care. And it's Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett. Yes, want to fly away or just take vacation because it is summertime? Maybe you don't have enough vacation days left or you want to save them somewhere else? Well, there's a new catchphrase that may apply to you. It's called hush travel. Yeah, keeping it quiet, hush travel. And it's especially true or available to some people who do remote work. What is hush travel? Well, it refers to when remote workers do not inform their bosses that they are going to a new destination, even a tropical island or some unknown tourist spot. The theory being that if you plan to take time off but uh, don't have enough, if uh, the work is still done, you can just do your work, make it a work day, but do the work while you're away enjoying a vacation. There's no need to tell your boss or colleagues. And, you know, when it comes to a Zoom meeting, just turn the camera off. I guess that's part of the idea. Let's talk with Danielle Riddle of a, you know, she's the CEO of Inspired Travel Group. i got to ask you, Danielle, have you heard about this uh, being a growing trend? Or is this just uh, kind of available to a select few? Um, Yeah, I've certainly heard about it being a growing trend and it's something that, you know, since COVID, I think, brought this to light. Um, Everyone was working remotely and and at the time, businesses had no choice but to be accepting people working from wherever was possible. Um, And since we've gone back to work, people have thought, well, hang on a minute, I've got the tech possibilities here to be able to work abroad so why not just pack up and um, and and head off and and work while I'm while I'm vacationing and and hence this concept has come about, which is hush travel. Hush travel, and it's amazing because there's so much you can do 
when you work remotely. And some of those are just incremental. Like it's no big deal if I just pop out for a few minutes to take the dog out for a pee or if I maybe take a few minutes more and go and get a couple grocery items I forgot about and then it can extend out to, well, what if I just go on vacation and still do the work? Yeah. I think it's, um, I think the concept is like, it, it sounds exciting and, it, and, it, and people think I can get away with this. You know, I can go, no, nobody's going to know what I'm doing. Um, but more importantly, I think when it comes to hush travel is that it probably doesn't need to be a thing. Um, I think, Leisure travel is probably more what we're leaning towards and as a business owner is something that we probably need to be more aware of. If our, if our employees are going on these hushed travel trips regardless, it, it, there's no sense in putting our head in the sand about it either. So although it's a great idea for the employee as something a little bit maybe mischievous to do and be able to work and travel Maybe as a as a whole, companies need to start embracing the idea of actually factoring this into our policies and being able to be more flexible in our approach to how our staff work and produce results. Well, it's another way that we're redefining work, isn't it? I mean, we've for a long time have not had this ability to do remote work and remote work was only done by a select few. Now it's really expanded out to so many more that can do it with software and uh, Zoom meetings and the pandemic, if it did anything, it sure taught us a few lessons. But uh, I also think that there are some people that have been doing this for years and they aren't employees. They work for themselves. And they've always said yeah. that, yeah, I can do it anywhere in the world. I've known those people. You probably have too. Oh, absolutely. And look, I practice what I preach, right? Like I am literally traveling as we speak. So, you know, um, my life is based on on the pleasure travel concept. And at Inspired Travel Group, we really, really encourage it, particularly with our own staff, because what it does do is promote so much more health and wellness for our staff and it makes for happy staff and productive staff and if if that's what you want out of your team um, enabling them to have the flexibility in their lifestyle is really going to achieve that and I I think that's something that is very positive of the concept of hush travel and turning it into something companies can truly embrace without people having to hide it. Um, I think the the hush travel concept has um, like I said, it's a great talking point and it's kind of exciting and, and employees think, oh, wow, this is something fun I can do to, to try and, you know, get the best of both worlds. But realistically, we can, we can make this happen in the workplace regardless and give people the best of both worlds and embrace this concept as Dan- a business. Yeah. Uh, Danielle, if I wanted to embrace this as a concept, if I am mm-hmm. an employer, what might be yep. the conversation that I would have right at the beginning of a hiring somebody? What might I want to say to encourage people to actually do it above board? Well, I think by working it into the structure of your company, not only is it um, potentially very productive for you, but it's alluring as well for for being able to get great employees. If people know that you offer this 
amazing, flexible environment. It's something, it's a, it's a company people want to work for. And so I think when hiring people and talking about the opportunity to work remotely, um, straight off the bat, they realize that, oh, there's an opportunity here for me to enjoy my life and also be productive at the same time. And so being able to understand when you're interviewing people, if they have the ability to work independently and are self-motivated, those are kind of the key questions as to whether or not it will work and is sustainable for your business. It does take a different structure of an organization, but I think the COVID impact of how we had to restructure our businesses quickly gave us an idea of whether or not we can or can't do this. And I think that you can see in the wake of COVID, what's happened where so many businesses have maintained a partial or complete remote environment really shows that this is the way of the future. People should be able to work and still have their lifestyle and incorporate the two. And if we can be productive and if we can maintain our KPIs um, while still enjoying our life uh, and, the, and the leisure that comes along with traveling and being abroad, um, then, then everybody wins in the end. So, yeah, I think it's, it's about approaching it with the staff in the sense of they're going to have more independent responsibility to be able to achieve their work goals, but there's a huge reward at the end of it. You know, I've got three friends, colleagues, actually, that uh, live in Mexico. Uh, One of them uh, lives in Mexico six months of the year, six months of the year up in the interior. But all three of them are able to carry out jobs, regular jobs, working remotely. But when it comes to travel, I wonder if there is a bit of a difference because when I travel... I would love to, and I'll put a caveat on this, but I would love to be able to say, no work whatsoever, Bruce. You are going on vacation. That's it. You're traveling. Have a good time. Leave the work behind. Are we now bringing work with us? Well, I guess that's the question. If you can compartmentalize it properly, then yes, it can be successful for you and it and it depends on the personality because people that can uh, structure their day properly and have a schedule, I know that's harder to do when you're traveling because you're trying to escape a schedule, but some people are very good at being able to assign certain days to traveling and certain days to relaxing. I guess if you think about the concept of you're going to travel somewhere where you know you can be comfortable and work, is a very good idea. Have that already in your mind, how you're going to set yourself up and your workstation is a very good idea. Um, but know that the weekend where you would normally be at home, that's when you're going to schedule your activities, your, your, your leisure activities for the trip. And if you can think about it that way and say, well, if I was at home, I wouldn't have this opportunity. Yes, I'd have my normal weekend, but I can fly to... Hawaii or I can fly to Mexico, set myself up for a few days, do my work per the hours that I'm required and then shut my laptop and enjoy the weekend or the long weekend to have fun in the destination I'm going to. Because I think most people when they do travel, as much as they don't want to have too much of a plan, we do tend to try and have a plan to maximise the experiences of where we're going. So if we just go blindly with no plan at all, uh, it can be a little bit difficult. 
So once you know that you're working and you're traveling, you can really easily structure that and make the most of of both, right? So again, I think it it is a personality question whether or not people can do that. But speaking from experience myself, you know, I'm I'm quite strict with myself. I I would work all the time if I could. Um, it is my personality. But when I'm with my family and I'm with my kids, it's a great opportunity for me to be able to shut the laptop and then go out and enjoy where I am if I have those activities scheduled and ready and prepared for the kids. And essentially, it's the same as at home. I need to do that too. I need to switch off. And so I think once you get used to it, it does just become, we're creatures of habit. So we're very good at adapting, which is what COVID taught us. And I think that's why it's working so well post-COVID. You know, some of us who have worked in the news media for years or worked as reporters, journalists, news anchors, talk show hosts, when we go on vacation, if something breaks out, that's a news story. We make that phone call back to a newsroom or start to send pictures on social media and start to be involved because we just can't separate out from the big story. It's a different sort of thing for us when we travel. Now, I've been in that situation many a time before, and my wife says, yeah, she married the news. Uh, but, uh, and some of that is this mindset for for me. It's like part of who I am, and I don't mind it. I, I get excited by my work. I guess there are some people, now, you work in the travel industry, um, with yep. the Inspired Travel Group and being the CEO of your own company, when you travel, you're always working, aren't you? Well, that's right. I was about to say I totally empathize with you because when I'm when I'm traveling, as much as I'm enjoying it is a it is a leisure activity, my work is my job. Uh, sorry, my work is travel. So essentially, yes, I'm always working when I'm traveling. But this comes back to again another another facet of it is that I'm I'm doing my passion. I do what I love. So for me, I absolutely love being and visiting properties. I'm always switched on. Yeah. I'm always checking out the facilities and the experiences. So for me, it's like my choice to be doing that and I'm living what I love. So I think that's another key to it. Generally if you're like you say, you're married, you're married to the news. It makes sense. It's what you love and you're successful at it. So it makes sense that if you're away and you get an opportunity, you're going to jump on that because you love it. And I think that's how it is for me too. Traveling and working goes hand in hand. Obviously, we're talking about people who have completely different careers yeah. but want to, try, want to try and incorporate that travel into their, into their working life. And if anything can help you to reduce stress, even if you are in a high-powered position, if you can reduce stress by having that break time, even in the evening and having a nice dinner on a beach in Hawaii, I mean, imagine the difference of your of, of how rejuvenated you feel compared to always being obviously stuck in an office or doing that daily grind. Hey, thanks for being with us. Bruce Claggett in for Jill. We've been talking about hush travel, hiding it from your boss and still working remotely. But this time when you go on a vacation, Danielle Riddle has been our guest, CEO of Inspire Travel Group. Go ahead and take a couple of calls. Peter in Surrey, what do you think of this? 
I think it's just ridiculous. I'm just sick of this society we're living in nowadays. Hush travel, don't tell your boss you're going away. And then your guest says, well, you know, maybe bosses should make travel part of the thing. And people go on holidays while they don't have the grind of the day and the stress. You know what life is? You go to work in the morning and come home at night. You work your ass off. I'm the boss. I'm 60. I'm the first in. I'm the last out. And you work. Part of life is a daily grind, teaching people about responsibility, the grind of the day, the grind of the morning, the grind of the night. This is just we're raising a society of people to have no responsibility just imagine going to work while you're on holidays and maybe doing some work while you're lying on the beach. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Love it. Just, Let's, uh, no, I'll leave it there, Peter. And I definitely hear uh, kind of the tension in your voice being a boss and uh, thinking, you know, what about the boss? He does all the work. She does all the work. And then these people just do that. Let's go to Vancouver and Ken. What do you think? Well, wow, that was a pretty passionate. Day. Yeah, my name's Ken. I'm calling from Vancouver. My twist on this, and this is true, during COVID, my boss, he's a president and CEO, I won't name the company, but we found out that he was actually in Florida. He was working out of Florida. We would have daily calls on Zoom, and they were always virtual. And, you know, funny story, um, a pal of mine told me you can track people's locations through their emails. So lo and behold, he was working out of Florida. I thought it was shameful and not telling people. It's one thing to do it and be open about it. I've never done it myself. Ken, I've taken, like you, I've taken calls, but it was, a, it was a shocker. I think you're getting right to the heart of the point, and it's being honest about it. And I think, Danielle, you mentioned that. Uh, you know, we should get rid of the phrase, hush travel, and just be open about it. Thanks, everybody. By the way, wish we had more time. Did not get to your calls, Jackson and Jim. My apologies for that, because this is really an interesting one. I think we're going to hear so much more about it. And uh, Danielle Riddle, uh, CEO, um, appreciate your time. There's more here, isn't there? Yeah, look, I think that I, I, I do think that it shouldn't be hush travel. And this is what causes contention, a boss going away and being in Florida um, if the staff don't know about it, of course, it's deceitful. Why would you do that? There's no reason to do that. They can lead by example. And I think that's what we need to be doing. And that's probably the point is to be honest and even the, even the staff be honest and turn it into pleasure travel and workations. And, honest and that whole new concept will be, will be embraced. Thank and you. Honestly, we, we can't avoid it. <laughs>